This week we continue our series in Isaiah, Ruin to Restoration. God's redemptive work is powerful enough to bring renewal and restoration to all life. Every relationship can be restored. Every circumstance can be redeemed. Every sin can be paid for. Every dark corner can be lit with gospel hope through the light and love of our living God. This morning, we will see how the presence and promises of God can bring restoration to any circumstance where we find ourselves. We do not need to change our circumstances, but rather change where we are looking for strength, hope, and renewal. Hear the eternal and powerful word of the Lord. We'll be reading from Isaiah 41, 8 through 10, 17 through 20. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the, of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set, the set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The only one of Israel has created it. All flesh is grass, and all its glory like the flower of the field. Stands forever. Thank you, Carl. Good morning, church. I add my greetings to those that you have already heard. Uh, let's begin. Do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and say, God wants to tell you something today. Will you do that? God's got a word for us through his word, and uh, it is a joy to be able to study it together uh, this morning. As we continue our series in uh, uh, chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 to 66, uh, if you want to follow along at home, uh, please just read with us. Uh, all the information is on our emails that get sent out. If you're not signed up, please make sure you fill out the friendship pad and you get different communications like today. Uh, if you want to know more about our church uh, and maybe what, more about what it means to follow Christ, we have a new members class, a um, Discover First class, free lunch uh, right outside of here in the Geneva room after the service. It, that's right, I said free. There's only one word for that. What's that word? Value. 
value. That's right. So uh, we do want you to connect on a deeper level with Christ, to connect deeper with one another, uh, and connect deeper in God's purposes uh, for you in this city, in our neighborhoods, and even among the nations. Alex, Miranda, we're very glad that you all are with us. Becky, we're glad uh, that you're back with us, and we are very excited to see what God's Word has to say to us today. We're going to be looking at uh, the, the presence and the power, the hope that comes uh, with the presence and power of God in our circumstances where we need restoration. Now, we're a people, we love restoration. There are TV markets, shows, and channels that are built off of the idea of restoring cars and restoring homes. We love it. Uh, we love restored art. We love restored furniture. We are a city uh, that is, you may not know this, we're known internationally for the restoration of the San Antonio River. Did you know that? The World Heritage Site of all of our, our mission way down there, if you haven't been to see that just south of the city, we have gotten an international award for the restoration of the San Antonio River. I thought there would be excitement after that, but that's okay. <laughs> all right, yeah. Uh, if anything, I know there's excitement. You know, the Pearl area 15 years ago, that was a place where no one in here would even park near, right? I mean, we wouldn't go near the old Pearl Brewery, and now we can't wait to get there. And you're saying you could finish early, Mitchell, so I can get to, uh, down on Grayson sooner than later, right? You know, I understand that. But we celebrate the restoration and renewal of things. We, we, we long for out with the old and in with the new. And this is something that is woven into the fabric of God's uh, story of redemption. All of history is about restoration. It's about renewal. When the Apostle Paul talks about uh, coming to know Christ, what Jesus says, being born again in John 3, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he uses the language of being a new creation. To be new in essence, new in quality, to be restored, renewed in your humanity. And Jesus, at the end of the redemptive story in Revelation 21, 6, it's a picture of him sitting on the throne saying, Behold, I am making all things new. In fact, Jesus, in, in, in Matthew chapter 19, when he's speaking, verse 28, he, he talks about the end. And he says, When the restoration, when the renewal of all things takes place, we are a people that are drawn to restoration and renewal because we know individually we need restoration and renewal. We long for it. Our relationships, our families, our friendships, our finances, the practical parts of our life, we, we long for the renewal and restoration. That Scripture is very clear. It comes through Christ and through Christ alone. And the, the real the premise today, it should already be up there, this theme of the introduction and the end is this truth that what you revere, that is what you worship, is either going to lead to further ruin in your life or it's going to lead to restoration in your life. And the opportunity that we have as God's people is to turn from those things that we're worshiping that are continuing to lead to ruin and turn back to the living God. The prophet Isaiah, he prophesied about 115 years before the people who first received his prophecy actually got it. He was speaking to a people that were far off, a people who were in exile, a people who were in a land not their own, a people who were under oppressive powers, a people who uh, had broken the covenant of God and it ended up breaking them. And they were weeping 
They were mourning. They had more questions than answers, more fear than faith. You can find a, a summary of what they felt in Psalm 137. How bad was it? I'm just going to read you Psalm 137, verse 9. This is how the psalmist wanted to describe his feelings towards his captors. Blessed is the one who takes their little, their little ones and dashes them against the rocks. That's not a guy who woke up on the wrong side of the bed. That's a guy who is navigating a season of ruin and is longing for restoration. Scripture does give us language of frustration, fear, and anger, but it never leaves us without hope. Never. And so when God's people broke God's laws, they were sent into exile. We can read about that in 2 Kings 25. We talked a little bit about it last week. We talked about how uh, last week uh, God gives uh, personal transformation through the, the strength of of his promises, I mean the strength of his work and the strength of his word. And today we're going to see in our own times of exile, our own seasons of ruin, our own longings for uh, our life to circumstances to, to bear more light, hope, and love, our own hearts longing for answers. We're going to see uh, that we're going to have presence, hope from the presence of God and the power of God in the midst of our ruin, and that's going to lead us to restoration. I want to say it again. It's not up there, but I'm going to say it at the end too. Wherever you are in life, what you revere, that is what you worship, is either going to contribute to the ruin of your life or it's going to lead you to restoration. So let's turn to the Lord of the Word uh, and turn to him and ask for his mercy on the study of his word. Let's pray. Father, we are your people and you are our God. We ask now that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. We thank you for the reminder last week that you comfort us with your work and strengthen us with your word. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit would restore our hope with the promise of your presence and your power. Father, we ask that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive. We long not just to be inspired, but to truly be transformed. Lord, please remove the distractions of our hearts and our minds and the distractions of the one who speaks, that your word might speak freshly to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing that we see is that restoring hope uh, begins with the, the promise of God's presence. Now look down with me. We're going to just look at, begin at verse 8. The prophet is speaking for God and he says, But you, O Israel, but you. This is repeated throughout this section. He says uh, that you are whom I took. I'm saying of you that you are my servant. I have chosen you. I am with you. It's the second person plural. It's this Texas language of y'all. It's very tender and warm. This isn't like this formal God going, you. It's really a, a, a personal, tender God going, y'all. I'm here with y'all. The promise of his presence. And you see the personal nature of his presence as we walk through this passage. If you look down, he says, but y'all, Israel, you're my servant. And this, this, this title of servant is a very powerful image in this section of Isaiah. We're going to unpack it more as we go. But right now you can just note it that here it means the collective Israel, the house of God, the, the family of God. Later, it will be the representative of God. And this is when uh, we get more into our um, Lenten stuff. But it's a beautiful picture of God's 
familial intimacy with his people, my servant, my chosen one, Jacob, whom I have chosen. And he gets in here. How personal is it? He calls him the offspring of Abraham. He reminds them that, that he comes to him in the context of the covenant that he made with Abraham. Just because they broke God's covenant and they were ended up being broken by the consequences of that, the curse of the covenant, God did not quit on them. Our failure as individuals, our failure as a people is never the end of the story. God's covenant faithfulness is always the centerpiece. So when he says, my chosen one, my offspring of Abraham, he is intentionally drawing on the imagery of his covenant faithfulness to his people. And it goes deeper than that. The next, next thing he calls him is my friend. Literally, the one whom I've loved. It is this tender, intimate language God is saying, I am with you. I'm with y'all. Y'all are the ones I chose. Y'all are the ones that are my friends. And he says, finally, y'all are the ones that, that I took, that I called, verse 9, from the ends of the earth, from the furthest corners. That is, that is just to say, I took Abraham, your father, from the Chaldeans. It's It's nowhere. That place is not significant. The ends of the earth, what is significant is you belong to me. Now, as a pastor, I love pointing out that God speaks of his presence in very doctrinal terms. Theology matters, right? He comforts his people with election. <laughs> he comforts them with calling. He comforts them with predestination, the promise of God, the, the, the faithfulness of God, the sovereignty of God. But here's the real heart of it. If you look down uh, in, in verse 10, he says, fear not, I am with you. The heart of the covenant is God's presence with his people, even after we failed. And not to remove our circumstances, get this, but to transform us through our circumstances. Exile of the people of God the ruin that we experience in our own lives individually and in our relationships, the, the personal sin struggles, the, the relational struggles, the, the difficulty that we find in our hearts and our circumstances, those are arenas for God to show up and to bring restoration. And there's power in presence. I mean, there is power. God says, I am with you. Well, what does that mean? Look, he says, don't fear, don't be dismayed. I am y'all's God. Look at the, the end of chapter, verse 10. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. I don't know where you are today in your life or who you're walking with that, that knows that they need strength. Where do they turn? Where are you turning for strength? Where are we turning for hope? Where are we turning for help and to be upheld? God says, I am with you. Do not be afraid. Now, if you're like me, you want some more clauses in there. Can you say, God, I am with you. Do not be afraid. I will change your circumstances. I mean, come on. That's how I am. I don't know about you, but when things are really bad in my life, difficult, it's always someone else's fault, 
right? God's got to deal with these people. I'm a lot like the psalmist. Blessed is the one who bashes their head on a rock and changes my circumstances. And God says, I'm not as interested in changing your circumstances as I am changing your heart. And this has been a theme of my life. And we need good friends that remind us of that. I've got a good friend named Joseph. Joseph has walked with me a long time. And there was a season of my life, my senior year of college, uh, after that I moved to Lubbock, Texas, and then after that I moved to, uh, back to Tennessee, and, and he walked with me through all kinds of transition, and I remember a specific car ride with Joseph. And he was talking about life, and I was telling him about how difficult things were, how difficult my circumstances were, and I used this phrase, I said, you know, Joseph, I feel like I'm dying in a pile. And he goes, Mitchell, you've said that same phrase the last three places that you've lived. Everywhere you've been, you've been dying in a pile. He goes, can I ask you a question as a friend? I said, sure. He said, there's one common denominator. Is it your circumstances or is it just you? Is God teaching you something? And I did what any grateful friend would do. I mocked him. Is it just you? No, I didn't. I received it because he went on. He said, you know, Mitchell, I want to remind you that when, when God talks to his people, Romans 8, 28, 29, he quoted, he said, look, you know God's working things for the good of those who love Christ and are called according to his purpose. But he went on to remind us that, remind me that in verse 29, that purpose is to make me more like Christ. That purpose is not to change my circumstances so I feel good and comfortable. That purpose is to be a catalyst for my sanctification and Christ-likeness. And then he took me back to Romans 5, verses 2 to 5, and he said, look, we have to rejoice in our suffering because the suffering, it leads to hope. And the end of that, he went on to point out, is proven character. And he said, Mitchell, I know you've been in difficult situations the last three places you live, but you've got to start paying attention to what God wants to do in you, who he's making you into. You see, the power of God's present, he, yes, he's powerful enough to change circumstances, and he does for the exiles. He shows his sovereignty by eventually calling it a pagan king, Cyrus, king of Persia, to come and bring liberation to his people. He can and he will change things, but he wants to make you more like himself. His purpose and his presence to say, you are my servant, that you are my chosen one, you are my friend. I have called you to myself to be with you so that you need not be afraid, so that you can have strength, so that I can help you, is to be more dependent upon him so that we will reflect him more. And the psalmist will remind us that we, we do, in fact, reflect that which we worship. And if we're worshiping God in our circumstances, it will be restorative to us. The power of God's presence, the personal presence, is restoring hope. And where, where is this real power found? It's found in his spirit, the promise of his power. Now, if you flip to the next page, and the next page, my well, let's look at 17 through 20. This is uh, uh, known as kind of a hymn for salvation for, for people who need it, who know they need restoration for people who know we're poor in spirit, for people who know we're needy for grace and God's sovereignty, for people who are thirsty, that our hearts are crying out. And what's really humbling is that God hears us, that the power of being heard, that God gives us promise of power. Look at verse 17. 
When the poor and needy seek water and there is none. Can you say water? When the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst. This is amazing. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. The power of being heard. Do you believe that when you cry out in your life that God hears you? Or do you hear your circumstances more clearly? God hears you. He longs for you to cry out to him. He is with you. He will not forsake you. And he's very intentional what his power looks like in verse 18. I will open rivers on the barren heights. Those areas that seem barren and desolate, he will open rivers, the fountains in the midst of the valleys. He'll make the wilderness where you feel like you're wandering a pool of water and the dry land spring of water. He will answer. He is with his people. He will refresh. I'm reminded of of a story. I want to show you a couple of slides here. It's not very good images, but this is a picture uh, in a certain part of Iraq. Iraq is known uh, for formerly having one of the most beautiful uh, wetlands in all of that part of the world. Well, maybe that's a low bar, but it was very well-known wetlands. Mesopotamia, Fertile Crescent. And when Saddam Hussein took power, he wanted to do two things. He wanted first to have a waterway that ran from Baghdad to the Persian Gulf. And second, he wanted to punish a group of people called the Marsh Arabs. And so he decided to knock two birds out with one stone. He drained the marshlands and and used the water to build canals and so that he could have a direct uh, trading route from Baghdad to the Persian Gulf. Now, uh, what did this leave behind? It left behind a wasteland. It left behind dry valleys. This is an amazing picture of what once was in this land. And, And if you look at that, It's almost like looking at our lives when we're in seasons of ruin. It's parched. It's lifeless. It's dryless. It seems hopeless. There's nothing that can really be done. And when the the wrong thing is ruling and has power over your life, it actually robs you of the resources like Saddam Hussein did their wetlands. Here's what's interesting about this. After Saddam Hussein was toppled, one of the first things that happened in that part of Iraq was that the Marsh Arabs went to the canals that they had been dug. They broke down the walls and they reflooded the area. And what was formerly totally devastated, they didn't realize there was actually seeds of life still in there. And and the marshes came back and the wildlife returned. When God is using this, this imagery, saying, I will refresh your desert places, he is saying, you look at barren places of your life and you say it's dead, it's hopeless, it's dry, it's lifeless. And he says, I will bring life. I will bring repurpose. I will bring fruitfulness again. I will make it fertile. That's his power to restore, revive, renew through his provision, living waters will flood us. But that's not the only power that he has. In verse 19, he says, I will, uh, I will put the, uh, in the wilderness of cedar, the achaia, the myrtle, the, the myrtle, the myrtle and the olive, I will set in the desert of Cyprus and the, and the plain and the pine together. He's saying, I will give you shelter. These are trees in the midst of places where you can't find rest 
and you can't find shade and shelter. And then he says, tells us why he does it. He says, I'm doing this so that they, those who are thirsty, poor, and needy, will know that they'll see and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. He is doing it for his glory. He is working. And in, there's a direct contrast all through this section. And you can see it at the beginning of chapter 41 and at the end, the contrast with the idols. God is talking to a people who are tempted to revere, that is to worship the, the gods of our culture, to look for strength and hope, to look for help from things that aren't the Lord. In fact, he describes them, I love the way he describes them in verse 29, if you look down, he talks about the idols, he says, they're all a delusion, their works are nothing, their metal images are empty wind. God's word is not empty, it is powerful. And he gives his promise of his power in where we find ourselves. And he wants to meet you, his people. And he does so the person of Christ. One of my favorite pictures of this from the gospel is John chapter 4. It's the woman at the well. And she was a woman who really believed if she just changed her circumstances, everything would be fine. She isolated herself from the community because she felt shame and brokenness, Right? She had been through five different men as her husband, and the one that she lived with, it wasn't her husband. And she still felt shame. She still struggled. She still needed shelter. She still needed to be refreshed. She still needed to know that God would hear her and answer. She still had this longing for restoration and hope. And Jesus came and met her by the, by the well, and he told her about living water. <laughs> Jesus himself, the Messiah, that comes and floods our barren places and gives life, comes and floods our lonely places and gives us his very presence. He comes and floods our questions with, with hope and solution. He comes and floods our fears and gives us peace. His living water comes and, and floods our, our sinful past and gives us new life and new hope. The, the, the living water of Jesus Christ floods our places that are a desert, and he brings revival, restoration, and renewal. He's the God who finds us, and someone here today needs to open up to him. We've got to stop being a people who allow our circumstances to speak louder than the word of God. We gotta stop being a people who allow our own insecurities and our own feelings of pain to be a place that speak louder than the promises of God in his word. We've got to be a people who are open to the God who loves y'all. He wants to be with you, he's chosen you, and he longs for you to see him in his presence as enough. And we have that opportunity to turn by faith, to trust him, and to obey him. He is a God who is alive. The woman at the well believes in his love. This God who fully saw her, fully loved her. <laughs> and she went back and was totally repurposed and went on mission and brought the whole village to meet Jesus. Her isolation this was just deafening in its silence became just a chorus of glory and hallelujah as she brought a whole village to meet Jesus. God wants to do the same thing in you. He wants to restore what has been broken. He wants to give life to what feels dead. He wants to give hope to where there's despair. He wants to 
make his character more faithfully and fruitfully formed in you so that he can work through you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your covenant faithfulness. Lord, that we have uh, just the surety of your love. You are love. We thank you that no matter where we are today, no matter what we've done, we can turn to you and we can find forgiveness, restoration, and renewal. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you are sovereign and that you are with us, infinitely ruling over all that is going on in our world and in our lives and intimately showing your power to bring transformation. Father, we ask that you would open us more to your love so that we could trust you and your promises more and obey and follow you. Lord, we thank you and praise you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.